This is In-House Insiders, a podcast from the Association of Corporate Counsel, where you'll hear from the most interesting in-house legal professionals in Australia. On the show, we'll explore their stories, the challenges they've faced along the way, and the lessons they've learned that have defined their careers. I'm your host, May Ramsey, and I'm the Group Executive Legal Governance and Regulatory Affairs at Medibank. Hi, I'm Teresa Cleary and I'm Group General Counsel and Company Secretary at Elixnell Wellness Limited and National Vice President at ACC Australia. I'm filling in for May on this episode. Today, I'm speaking to Nadia Mansur. Nadia is the Chief Legal Counsel at HBF Health Limited, one of Australia's largest private health insurance providers. Before moving into in-house roles, Nadia worked in private practice and ran her own consulting firm. Nadia is passionate about mentoring, and in 2021, she won the Mentor of the Year Award at the Australian Corporate Lawyers Awards. In today's episode, Nadia will share what it was like transitioning from running her own business to transitioning to an in-house legal role. You'll hear what she finds most rewarding about being a mentor, and Nadia will tell the incredible story of how she found out about the global financial crisis while she was in the middle of giving birth. Let's jump in. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you for having me. How did things get started for you in your career? Well, I finished law school back in, oh my goodness, must have been 1999, back when the dinosaurs roamed. And I took what was then article clerkship at Herbert Smith Freehills. And I was pretty lucky. I sort of knew I had a clerkship a year before I'd finished uni. So that was a big deal back in those days. So I was pretty excited. I did a couple of years at Herbert Smith Freehills or what was then Freehills and uh, went on secondment to a client, which was a bank, and never went back. (laughs) (laughs) So I went from private firm straight in-house, wasn't a planned move, but I absolutely loved it. And I've sort of done quite a bit since then. So yeah, the start was I wanted to be a litigator. I am not a litigator. Um, So my big world plans did not play out. Decided I didn't like the clacking of my knees in the courtroom. So um, didn't like the judge asking me too many questions. So yeah, I pivoted from litigation into commercial practice and that went from there. And that's a really good segue to my next question. You've said that you were actually told to avoid an in-house career. What made you decide to pursue one anyway? I hadn't really appreciated probably in the early 2000s going in-house was reserved for, you know, the really, really big corporates and your big banks. It was something very few people did or had the opportunity to do. And my whole preface of going to a law firm was to be a partner. So the view that going in-house, it was counter to that being a partner view. It wasn't as good as being in private practice. And look, to be honest, I had no idea whether any of that was true or not. But I, I do distinctly being you know, remember being told this is going to be career limiting for you. You know, you really should stay in private practice. I think the thing for me, once I hit the ground running in my secondment, I was sort of overwhelmed with the fact that, hang on a minute, I'm actually really involved in what's going on here. It's not just you sent me an email, I'm going to respond. I'm going to wait two days to get my response back. I'm going to go back and forth. And I'm really only providing the answers that you're wanting. You really are a part of the solution as much as you are a part of the problem, to be honest. But that's when I realised actually you can actually influence a whole heap more doing what I'm doing than I was ever going to be able to do sort of sitting behind sending out opinions and draft documents. For me, it was a realisation that this is much more enjoyable for me 
And to be honest, probably my personality, I thrive around people. And the idea of, you know, I remember my first year of practice having an internal office. Now it was a big deal getting an office. I know people don't get those these days, but the internal office, and it was, we used to call it the dungeon because it had no windows. It was those dark, dimly lit internal ones near the elevators. And I remember ringing my mum going, oh my God, like I have to sit here all day doing this, you know, having come out of the freedom of university, going from that to being really chained at your desk from nine to five. That was a real culture shock for me. There wasn't sort of any getting up and socialising stuff. Yeah, you had your lunch break, but that was it. And I think when you go into an environment of a business, it was this moving, thriving, humming beast. And there were so many facets and it was so engaging and so interesting for me. And I really found myself nose first into things I had no idea about and having to figure it out and just enjoying the thrill of that sort of ride, if you like, and really being able to influence the outcome. It wasn't just something you sent off and you never, ever heard back from the client on, you know, exactly where it was going, how it was being used, how to get the outcomes. You saw the outcomes and that, that was very powerful for me. So you also mentioned that you found out about the global financial crisis while giving birth. Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah, I laugh about that now. So um, I'd been to the UK just before the GFC, obviously being in banking, I started sort of witnessing what I would call internationally, at least some pretty crazy behaviours in terms of claims and marketing. There was securitizations were a really big deal back in the day from a banking perspective. For those who've watched Get Short, I think the movie's called, have a look at that one, sort of reminds me of, of that era. I remember going on um, maternity leave and thinking things are looking pretty bleak, but I don't quite know what is going on. It wasn't sort of at the point where, you know, in 2008 when that was happening, it wasn't that you knew that it was a GFC. You just knew that there was something wrong. And one of the things I did before going on mat leave was put together a number of business continuity documents and plans around financial crisis, et cetera. And I remember people actually saying to me, I think she's gone a bit cuckoo with the, the, the old pregnancy brain, but thinking, no, something's a little bit awry and not quite sure what that's going to mean. And I was in the delivery room, had quite a long labour and my I had two mobile phones and neither of them would stop ringing. <laughs> and um, I got a call saying, things are not great, things are happening. And it wasn't quite as you know drastic as this, but some stuff has really gone down. And without wanting to sort of breach confidentiality of, of those days, the essence of it was I knew in that moment that I was going back to a very, very different financial sector. And in fact, the organisation I worked for was then subsequently acquired. So I also knew that I was on the wrong side of a merger and acquisition so I recall it being a time of complete panic. And at that time, and for those of us who've practised for a very long time, will recall that the government had to intervene to give some guarantees in relation to deposits because there were huge runs on the banks and there were billions of dollars that were getting moved out. So, you know, that was a really critical juncture for me. And I remember going, oh, crap, you know, this isn't great. But I'm having a baby right now, guys, but I'll chat to you later. <laughs> so uh, it was one of those things that um, I look back on and, and the phone didn't stop ringing. And I was like, there's really nothing I can do. You know, I'm on mat leave. Yeah, very sort of unique moment and one that sort of forged in my memory about a point in time of sort of crisis in the financial sector more broadly and mostly obviously internationally. But at the time, the, our parent company was UK based. It was Halifax Bank of Scotland. So it was a pretty big deal. Really, really interesting story. So you actually ran your own consulting firm for a while. What made you decide to start your business? Well, probably a bit of a long story. <laughs> 
in 2010, I think it was, trying to jog my memory now, I left banking and look, a lot of that was post restructuring and a lot of roles being moved on and retrenched. And I went, had a bit of a break. I'd also now had a two-year-old, a young child, and I found myself back in a law firm for a couple of years, only to end up back at the bank again, (laughs) in it with slightly different role, different ownership. And I was back in the bank and this time I was a consultant and a contractor. So my care factor was somewhat reduced, but not entirely. As you do a little bit more relaxed um, without the worries of being a leader in, in that role. And I thought I'm okay to sort of dabble in a bit of consulting for a little while and kind of take it a bit easy while my, my child is young because I don't want to miss out on those early formative years. And I felt the real tension between how do I be a mum and then how do I keep my career? I did a stint back at the bank on contract and then had another little bit of a break and then found myself back there again for another stint very sort of closely together and I sort of got to the point my son was starting to ready getting ready to go to kindy Um, I was looking at what does him going to school look like what do I actually want to do and when I went back in house for now what would have been the third time it really sort of dawned on me that I was just so much more than a lawyer like all the skills I'd developed in house as a strategist I was involved heavily in commercial negotiations. I was so much more than just a lawyer. So I I did something probably in hindsight a little bit crazy. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have strategy. I just thought, you know what? There's a niche for what I do and I'm going to go and be a consultant and I'm going to go and consult on a whole bunch of stuff, including in relation to project management, IT strategies, programs, all of that stuff. And I'm going to wear my legal hat to guard it. I got offered a permanent role back in the bank And um, I found myself looking at, you know, do I do this role permanently again, having been in and out, but I really want to go and do this business. And I just thought it's Groundhog Day. I can't do this again. I'm not going to come back and do more of the same because at that point I'd sort of felt in my career, I'd matured to a point where, you know, I'm not even joking. I was seeing the third successive renewal of the contract I'd drafted nine years prior. So that's kind of when I had that epiphany of like, I can't keep doing this. I'm going to go nuts. So um, no thinking pattern whatsoever. The most thinking I did on this was what was I going to call this business? Um, And lucky for me, I had a whole IP background on trademark registrations and all the things that go with that. So I did that. And I I encouraged another one of my friends who was a fellow lawyer that, you know, we should throw caution to the wind and stuff it and we should set up our own business. So really brave step, terrifying. And for anyone who's ever ventured doing that, um, starting a business is really, really hard, particularly when you've got no money everything is expensive. Well, you think you have money, but you realise you don't when you start looking at systems and IT and all of the infrastructure that needs to support that. So that started off purely as a consultancy with the view that I was not doing law anymore. I was done with being a lawyer. And the first year was really successful and the second year was too. But as I small through that aspect of my different career, if you like, everyone kept saying, hey, Nards, which is my code name for when people don't say my full name, why don't you just do the legals for us? Like, if you're doing all of this stuff, why don't you just do the back end and do all the contractual arrangements or review all the documents or whatever? And I resisted that because I didn't want to do it. And what happened was over time, 80% of my business up front was consultancy and other strategic stuff and a little tiny bit of, you know, more management consult advisory And then by about year two, the pressure from clients to start providing the holistic end-to-end, why don't you do from inception through the legals? And that's when I thought, okay, when we set up an incorporated legal practice, 
Um, so again, another big step in the journey. But really, it was about not wanting to be pigeonholed into the view that my skills were limited to just being a lawyer. And I think for anyone that's in-house, you know that you're doing so much more than lawyering and you kind of want to see that, but um, you certainly don't have the opportunity in a firm to do that. I mean, I'm not suggesting firm lawyers aren't strategic, but I think it's very different when you're in a business because you're compelled to be commercial because if you're not commercial, you're not one of the business. So um, leap of faith, you know, I did that for almost five years and uh, would have kept on doing it, but for this role that came a knocking. So um, yeah, scary and terrifying, <laughs> but we did it. It's a fascinating journey. So now you're the general counsel for HBF. What was that transition like going from your own business to such a big company? Look, I think for me, in fact, HBF was smaller than the banking organisations that I'd worked for. So I certainly, the transition um, to the size of the organisation wasn't the worry for me. I think the transition worry bead was a new sector. And I had no, you know, previous background in health insurance and I there's a limited pool of probably people that do, but really the fear of, oh my God, I've got to learn something new and this is going to be hard because I think as you get more senior and you become more pragmatic and you kind of get more of a holistic view of issues, particularly commercially and in, in, in a sector you're really familiar with, it did obviously have a pretty tight nexus to financial services, but it was also very different. So I think for me, it was really equipping myself. So there were those few months where I'm going to say I was a little bit deer in the headlights and terrified. And they also spoke a completely different language. So I was finding myself going, sorry, stop. Can you, what is that acronym? What, is that, what does that actually mean? And realising actually it was more nuanced than what I'd known. So having to get up to speed with that. And I think, you know, there were di there's different pressures. There was pressures of running a business and managing your clients and managing everything that goes with running a firm. And it being seven days on that basis versus being in a big organisation where it's potentially seven days, but in a different way. It's not the same. And I think the other challenge for me that I probably struggle with a little bit is the autonomy and power I had in, as an owner of a business. I didn't have to go to work if I didn't want to. <laughs> I could tell a client they had to wait a few more days and, and my clients, you know, I had a fantastic absolutely fantastic book of clients. It was never an issue that I had to go and pick up my child or go and see whatever concert was on that day. That was never an issue. But when you come in the house, it's not that it can't be done, but certainly that tension of saying no, and we've got a very flexible workplace here, but certainly that ability to say, well, I'm calling the shots on this was very different. So it was a bit of a role reversal for me in that I was a decision maker proper on things I was doing, whereas I'm the decision maker on legal things that I'm doing. It's very different. If you go from being a CEO to not being a CEO, it's a bit of an adjustment. <laughs> not suggesting uh, it was my role was huge, but it's if you go from that sort of executive capacity to a legal capacity, it is a different hat that you're wearing. So you've actually touched on this through this really insightful journey, but if you could just sort of pull out, what is one of the biggest challenges you faced in your general counsel role and how did you overcome that challenge? Oh, that's a tricky one. I'd say more recently, my challenges have been probably more about adapting to some of the stresses that have come out of COVID and really trying to understand more the human dynamic. I think, you know, I've been a leader for a very long time and, you know, I love doing what I do, but I think the pandemic brought just so many issues to the fray, whether it be business or personal, but 
there were a lot of people who were very stressed. There were a lot of businesses that were very stressed and, and really understanding a bit more about the human dynamic and the need for trying to understand what are people's needs. And I think for a long time, no one really faced into that conversation. You expect it to turn up at nine and you go home at five, subject to the caveat, the asterisk that says you work whatever hours you need to do to do your job. But we hadn't really tested the boundary on that. And we also didn't really understand what people's expectations were or how they were going to react to change. And I think for me, that was really insightful about how, you know, the people perhaps that you thought might have been easier and a bit more go with flow perhaps were a bit more stressed. The people that you thought would like to work from home, didn't want to work from home. You know, it was all that sort of human dynamic and it was not necessarily organisational, but more broadly trying to adapt to understanding and also understanding the generation, I guess as I've gotten more senior as well, understanding that I'm now in a different generation and I'm not the young person, even though I think I'm 25 years old. So really understanding that, hang on a minute, there's different ways of working, there's different ways of solving these problems and it's not a traditional construct. So that real adaptability on that human factor. And I think we're going to see more of that, particularly as, you know, AI starts making more of an inroad into what we're doing day to day. But, you know, the human impact really, I think, has probably been not challenging because of any problems, but challenging to try and find solutions that you can adapt to that work for everybody or for lots of different needs. And I think probably that's the one that speaks to me most from recent events. I think a lot of people can relate to that. It certainly has been an interesting few years. So you won the Mentor of the Year Award in 2021. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. What was the experience like? Mentoring is fantastic. I mean, I think I do a lot of it and I have done a lot of it informally, not with any formal arrangements. And I I found myself, um, and I think this sort of during the pandemic, really looking for what, what more am I doing in terms of giving back to the profession? And I think one of my challenges coming up is I at times felt that I would have loved to have had someone show me the ropes. I didn't come from a family of lawyers or just be a mentor. It wasn't something that was really talked about when I was sort of in my the younger part of my career. So I sort of felt it was incumbent to give back as a senior member of the profession now. And, you know, how do you do that? I wanted to do a lot more volunteering on other things, but to be honest, I realised I couldn't, I just physically didn't have the time with all my commitments. So for me, it was an easy one to give a couple of hours a month on where I sort of knew there were no strings attached and I was going to be helping somebody. I think for me, I really wasn't looking to get anything out of it in that I was giving, but I think what sort of shocked me was the receiving and I'm not very good at receiving. I'm mostly good at giving, but the day I actually was told about the nomination and and I'll be honest, my my mentee knows this, I actually got a little bit cross about it because I thought, oh God, you know, I don't want to put my hat up in the ring for this. It's not, it wasn't for a want of anything she had done, but I actually didn't want the attention for that or that she felt the need for a nomination. And I was like, oh God, you know, I don't need to be recognized for this was kind of my approach. And then I, and then my second thought was, <laughs> honestly, my second thought was, oh my God, how many forms have I got to fill in? I can barely scratch myself. So, but there was that tension of um, me being really uncomfortable with the attention initially. I'm, I'm, I didn't feel comfortable you know, having this thing go before judges. And and it was probably more my own issue of um, kind of, as, and I had someone say this to me very early in my career, don't hide your light under a bushel. And I remember the first time someone told me, I thought, I don't know what you're talking about, but I've gotten really good at, you know, just getting on with it and not expecting anything in return. So I think for me, it put me out of my comfort zone. 
And I found it really difficult to respond to some of that stuff. But I think what my mentee did do was force me to actually go, maybe I did actually do something good and it was nice. And you know, maybe I did, you know, actually put the shoe on the other foot and, and see it from her perspective, which she really wanted to recognize what I had done for her. And so I had to respect that. And I think initially I, I was a little bit selfish about what it meant for me in terms of, oh, I don't want to limelight and I don't want to have to do any paperwork and blah, blah, blah. But bottom line was um, she pushed me out of my comfort zone and I was really uncomfortable. I didn't really want to be vulnerable and tell you about why I was doing these things and all the things that go into that because for me it felt to be awkward and it's probably conditioning like I've just been told taught to get on with it do your job get on with it everyone will notice and I think a lot of women can relate to that we don't blow around trumpet or brag about what we do we just get on with it very true and really insightful you've um covered some of the questions I had which was what made you want to be a mentor and what was the most rewarding part about being a mentor the benefits to the mentee in a mentoring relationship are pretty obvious. Can you talk about the benefits that you receive as the mentor? Yeah, I think for me, it was, you know, one of the most insightful things is when you're being asked to mentor someone and guide someone, it's actually really easy to put your own personal views in the mix and say, well, you know what, this is what I would do. And I'm someone, I don't sit on the fence. I've got a view. I'm certainly no shrinking violet, but that's probably, I think, contributed to my success over my career. I, I'll, I'll have a view. I mean, I'll sit on the fence when I want to hear different viewpoints. But I think what that made me realise is that when I was giving that advice, I had to be so careful that this person potentially was going to be hanging on every word I said. And so it had to be really considered. Was I thinking about her and her circumstances or was it strictly my view according to my own life perspectives and my own biases? I didn't actually appreciate how much of our own personal views goes into that, right? We don't realise it. And, and also how much hangs on the power and the weight of what we do. I, I mean, I've never thought of myself as being a powerful person, but people have said, oh, but you're a powerful person. I'm like, well, oh, actually, now that I think about that, you know, something that you say that might be, in jest or a bit of a joke or a bit of a jibe. Someone might take that the wrong way. So I was really, really careful. Um, and it really forced me to take a step back and think about this is someone's career, this is someone's future. Um, this person is seeking guidance. And also how can I help influence without directing and telling? So I'm going to tell you to go and do X. Let's chat about that and let that individual come to their own conclusions. And I think with what we do, it's very easy as lawyers to you know, your clients come to you, what do I do about this? And I would do X and I wouldn't do Y and definitely don't do Z. You've got to take that all off. And uh, it was a bit of a, as, as an advisor, to be advising in a different context, um, you know, it's a different hat that you're wearing. I'd encourage anyone that's listening, do it because you'll get so much more back and you'll learn a lot about yourself and your own, your own views and perceptions and biases that perhaps you don't challenge yourself on. It's a really, really great um, story. And again, Lots of insightful tips for our listeners. So now it's time for our quick fire round. I've got a few questions that I'm going to ask you in rapid succession. The rules are you have 10 seconds to answer each question and you have to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Are you ready? I am allegedly ready. <laughs> okay. Let's go. Number one, if you met your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give them? Travel the world and have fun. Love it. Number two, what is one skill you've really had to develop through your in-house role? Listening. Number three, where do you go to upskill? Everywhere. 
(laughs) (laughs) Number four, who's someone you really admire? Oprah Winfrey. Okay, interesting. Number five, what's one item on your bucket list? Going to Antarctica. I like to do that too. Number six, what's your favourite hobby? Reading. (laughs) Reading, reading, absolutely. Not non-legal stuff. And on that note, what have you enjoyed reading recently? Actually, I read a book called Epilogue yesterday, which was a collection of stories from um, some teenagers at my son's high school, and it was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Last question. What is the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Caffeine. No one's allowed to talk to me until I've had my coffee. And I think that will resonate with a lot of our listeners here today. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining me on the show today, Nadia. Thanks very much, Teresa. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to In-House Insiders, a podcast about the stories, challenges and lessons learned by Australia's top in-house legal professionals. In-House Insiders is produced by the Association of Corporate Counsel. ACC's purpose is to support the professional and business interests of in-house counsel through information, education, networking and advocacy initiatives. I've personally been an ACC member for 15 years and I continue to remain a member for the fantastic peer networking opportunities I get and the access to tailored CPDs that cater for every stage of an in-house lawyer's career. If you're not a member already, you can join me and over 45,000 other in-house counsel from around the world. For more information about ACC or to join, please visit the website acc.com. This has been In-House Insiders. I'm May Ramsey and I'll speak to you next time.